Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to discussing films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. We're now in our third year and would like to thank you for your continued interest. If you'd like to support the show, we have simplified the ways in which you can do that. The easiest way is to leave us a star rating and perhaps a review if you felt so inclined, which will help other people find the show. You can now do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review from where you'll be guided to the review site of your choice. The other way is to leave a small financial donation, either one-off or regular, which you can do now at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate, which will take you to our Ko-fi donation page. Donations can be from as little as £3, and one of those £3 donations should be enough to buy half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear more complicated URLs in the upcoming episode, but these simpler ones work just as well. So that's SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much indeed. Do you realise that man offered me a job at the Casino de Paris? Oh, where's that? Paris, of course. Where did you think it was? Ashby de la Zouche? Well, you're not going... Hello and welcome to episode 45 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk about Soho and the films that are set there. My name is Dominic Delaghi and apologies for the long delay in getting this episode out. I've been, what can I say, working and hardly bear to say the word. But anyway... I'm here now, and this is the last in our three-part special series on Soho's very own superstar, Jesse Matthews. If you didn't hear the previous two episodes, I would encourage you to hit pause now and listen to those bits first so you know what the flipping flip I'm talking about. You can find all previous episodes and their show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com. But let's get going. There's a lot to squeeze in. Previously on Soho Bites. At the end of the last episode, it was 1935, and Jesse was the UK's biggest film star. Hollywood had come a-knocking, but Michael Balkan, the top man at Gaumont British, the studio to which Jesse was signed, had not released her for his own business reasons. This was a big disappointment to Jesse, but she was, nevertheless, famous all over the world. Jesse and her second husband, Sonny Hale, had suffered the trauma of their son, Robert, being born prematurely and then dying four hours later. They had, at great speed, adopted a baby girl called Catherine. Her arrival came exactly one month to the day after the birth and death of their son. So what next? Well, Jessie died in 1981, so that means there are 46 years of her life to cover from the point at which we left off. A bit too much, I think, to cram into one episode with any level of detail. These 46 years included a few more triumphs on screen and stage, the Second World War, of course, followed by a sudden and quite marked downturn in her professional fortunes. She suffered more than one major mental health crisis. There was another divorce, another marriage, another divorce, comebacks, failures, successes, and in quite a strange turn of events, a return to the stage with one of her ex-husbands. And there was also the sometimes troubled relationship with Catherine, her adopted daughter. 
I've posted a link in the show notes at SohoBitesPodcast.com to a couple of places you can find out about Jessie's life in a bit more detail, including her autobiography. But in this episode, I'm going to take us up to the Second World War and then hand over to my guests to talk about different aspects of her life. The three films we're discussing over this series, The Good Companions, Evergreen and this episode's film, Friday the 13th, represent, in many people's view, the pinnacle of Jesse's film career. They were all directed by Victor Saville, but then when Saville made the move to Hollywood, the person who took over directing duties on some of Jesse's films was her husband, Sonny. Sonny directed three of Jesse's films in the late 1930s, Head Over Heels and Gangway in 1937, and Sailing Along in 1938. Her final pre-war film was Climbing High, also in 1938, directed by Carol Reed. The general consensus is that these four films didn't quite have the magic of the Savile era, although I think they're okay to be honest, and the box office receipts were certainly less healthy. By the end of the 1930s though, Jesse and Sonny, battered by the movie industry, had decided to make a big comeback to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, I have great pleasure in presenting Miss Jessie Matthews and Mr. Sonny Hale, who have a special message for all you people in this theatre. Here they are. Sonny, what shall I say? Go on, tell them about the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Sonny and I thought we'd like to tell you ourselves about our new venture. Go on, tell them what it is. Oh, shut up. It's our new musical comedy called I Can Take It, which is coming to this theatre soon. I feel it's the best part I've ever had. Part? Parts? Oh, yes, that's true. I forgot I played two parts. Yeah, she's not greedy, but she likes a lot. Well, you can't grumble at your part. Sonny's playing one of his usual fixers. What she's trying to tell you is that in my usual way, I try to put everything right for her and look after her. But fate is always against me. Sounds like us at home. Here, now keep family business out of it. How can I with your father in the show? Oh, yes, I forgot that. The old man's in it, too. Robert Hale. All right, they know. Listen, shall I sing on one of the tunes? All right, but only a bit to whet their appetites. What bit? You know, the bit that goes da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Oh, da, I'll never pay to hear a noise like that. All right, do it yourself. Only one. I Can Take It was produced by Sonny and Jesse through a specially formed company, Hales Productions Limited, and they sank almost every penny they had into the show. The gamble appeared to pay off, and it toured the provinces very successfully for most of 1939, prior to a planned triumphant West End opening in September. As the theatre they'd chosen was the enormous Coliseum on St Martin's Lane, they spent another £3,000, almost a quarter of a million quid in today's money, making new sets and enlarging existing ones. Stop there, stop there, stop there. Let them guess the rest. <clears throat> now, ladies and gentlemen, we don't want any excuses that you haven't been warned in advance that our musical comedy, I Can Take It, with Jesse, father of myself, not to speak of a cast of 50, a grand story by Lesser Samuels, who wrote so many of our films, music by Harry Woods, the great composer of the films Evergreen and It's Love Again, dances by Buddy Bradley, scenery by the great artist Aubrey Hammond is coming to this theater. Take a breath, darling. <gasps> Thanks. <clears throat> Don't forget, Jesse Matthews and Sonny Hale in I Can Take It. Just go round to the advance booking office and offer them your money. 
We can take it. See you soon. See you soon. The West End and the trade press were agog at this, and the London opening of I Can Take It was set to be the biggest theatrical event of the year. But then... This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. In her autobiography, Jessie explains how she heard the news. On Sunday, September 3rd, 1939, two large vans containing the scenery for our show rolled up the ramp to the back of the Coliseum Theatre. Sonny and I had driven down and were waiting in our car. I saw a man coming towards us. He was weeping. Every few paces he stopped and wiped the tears from his dark cheeks. It was Buddy Bradley. I threw open the door and raced towards him. What is it, Buddy? What is it? At first he couldn't speak. His distress was too great. Then he wept. It's all over. Everything's finished. We're at war. When we got back to the car, Sonny announced in a lost voice, I've just been told there's going to be an immediate blackout. All cinemas and theatres will be closed down. We're done for. Inside the theatre, the rest of the company waited for us. Sonny mounted a wooden box. You'll all be paid, he shouted. Don't worry, kids. We'll wind up the show and you'll all get what's coming to you. The chorus girls, twelve of them, were the first to answer. We're all in the same boat, Mr Hale, shouted one. Don't lose heart, called another. We can wait. It was heartwarming to hear them and their courage and goodwill helped, but the bleak realisation that we'd lost every penny we had was hard to bear. Buddy Bradley, of course, was Jessie's close friend and collaborator with whom she'd worked on five films. Hitler's decision to invade Poland was probably predictable. He hadn't exactly been keeping quiet in the preceding few years, and so it's arguable that Jessie and Sonny had only themselves to blame for this miscalculation. But with London's theatres dark and Jessie's film career floundering, the outbreak of war brought an abrupt end to the superstar period of Jessie's career. Here's our old friend, senior lecturer in film at King's College London, Dr Lawrence Knapper. Obviously the war makes a massive difference. Once Government British has collapsed in 1937-38 and the war has come, it's like there's almost nowhere for her to go really in terms of film, a film career. There are those things going on. I think, you know, by wartime, like that image of that Jesse Matthews projects off the... I mean, it's about luxury, it's about... Star, it's not... A, she, you know, she's not about all pulling together for the sake of the war effort. That's not her star image. That's not how that works. Vulcan had moved to Ealing. It's like she was no longer his problem. There was a sense in which that's sort of a bit what happens. And, you know, like, he's a big... Yeah. Producers are cruel, basically. Yeah, yeah. As soon as the star's not bankable, it's like, bye. And there was another issue at play contributing to Jesse sliding down the greasy pole of stardom. She was now getting on a bit. She was over 30. Her star persona is that she's a beautiful, statuesque figure who dances in a, in a way that displays her body, and her body is incredibly slim, with incredibly long legs, and lithe, and moves in certain ways. And 
like the pressure on i mean like this is so modern isn't it it's like the pressure on maintaining that body as you get older is is immense you know it's just immense and you like if you're walking onto the set and the and the director is saying well you like you don't fit the costumes you fitted last month like what are you going to do about that like that's really you know it's a damaging situation to be in and she was in it from a, such an early age that i think that is bound to take its toll really like the point of her stardom is her youth and her promise and like you can't sustain that when you get older <laughs> you know, if you think about it all of her films are about her becoming a star they're all about becoming a star becoming a star they're not about being a seasoned star and being able to kind of carry other things and i mean she's like she's amazing with what she does but she's you know she's not an all-round full-on actress you know she's not it's not easy for a figure like her to transition into older roles and different roles and obviously there are thousands of like young ingenues coming through who are like there people quite often celebrate stars who are because of their longevity because they move through different career stages and the kind of Catherine Hepburns of this world you know they start out being ingenues and then they become kind of serious actresses and then they become elderly kind of elder statesmen but most actresses and actors most stars don't do that most stars are stars for five ten years at most and then they vanish during the war Jesse traveled to New York reluctantly leaving Sonny at home with Catherine to appear in a new Broadway musical the lady comes across Away from her family, with the world at war, this was always going to be a difficult thing to do. On top of this, contractual and other logistical problems caused delays, and so Jessie kicked her heels in New York for weeks. When she'd first worked there, she was a 17-year-old girl on the verge of stardom. Back then, working on Broadway had been the realisation of an impossible dream, and the city lay at her feet. All these years later, she was widely seen as being past her sell-by date, and she found herself alone and lonely in the big city, with nothing to do, waiting for rehearsals to start, worrying about her family. Brief respite, though, came in the form of her old friend Victor Saville, who called her from Hollywood and asked her if she would like to join him out there to play a small part in an unusual film he's involved in called Forever and a Day. This was a collaboration involving several directors, numerous writers and a huge cast of well-known, mostly British stars, including several with whom she'd worked back in the 30s, such as Anna Lee and Edmund Gwen, plus other well-known Hollywood Brits like Nigel Bruce, Ida Lupino and C. Aubrey Smith. The film was made as part of the war effort, a plea to the United States to remember the UK in its darkest hour. Nobody received a wage for the film, but Jesse loved it and lapped up this fleeting taste of Tinseltown. While still in Hollywood, she was offered another film role, and this time she was to be Fred Astaire's dancing partner, at his request. Jesse had come very close to working with Astaire many years previously when she was at the height of her film stardom, but this opportunity had been stomped upon by Michael Balkan. This time, finally, she had the chance to reignite her film career by dancing with the greatest dancer of the era. She was, as she put it in her autobiography, being given back a dream. But with this extraordinary chance just within millimetres of her grasp, she heard from the producers of The Lady Comes Across. She was prohibited from doing the film as she was under contract in New York. This was yet another blow to Jessie's fragile self-esteem and upon her return to New York, Feeling increasingly depressed, 
she finally suffered a full-blown mental breakdown, characterised by terrifying paranoid delusions, and she was hospitalised. I was in a dark room. Someone had dressed me in a rough shift that scrubbed against my skin. I was on a bed, and the covers seemed to tie me down. I couldn't move my hands, they felt manacled. Had the Germans caught me? What had they done to me? I heard someone screaming. My throat hurt, and my mouth was open and dry. And then I knew that the woman who screamed was myself. Back home in England, Sonny was working. They needed every penny they could lay their hands on after losing their savings on I Can Take It. With money tight and the Atlantic crawling with German U-boats, the decision was made that Sonny and Catherine, who, incidentally, was now going by the name of Katie, should remain at home and not visit Jessie, much to her bitter disappointment. In addition to the couple's financial troubles and the dangers of wartime travel, there was another little matter that discouraged Sonny from being at his wife's bedside. His roving eye had alighted upon Mary, Catherine's nanny, and the seeds of what were to become his third marriage were being sown. Jesse, of course, eventually made a recovery from this first major breakdown, returned to the UK and got on with her life. I could go into every twist and turn of that, but you haven't got time in your busy life to listen to all of that. So in summary, before we get on to some more general contributions from our guests, I can say that there were more mental health episodes and a third and final marriage, this time to Brian, just a bloke called Brian, with whom she ran a pub in Farnham for a while. The pub was called The Alliance, but the alliance between Jesse and Brian was not to be a permanent one, and she eventually left him after a visit to South Africa. Brian wanted to stay in South Africa permanently, whereas Jesse, appalled by the apartheid regime, did not. Over the next few years, she was to land supporting roles in a handful of films and made many stage appearances. In fact, she had what would be considered a fairly decent career for most actors. And had it not been for those stratospheric years in the 1930s, perhaps the idea that her post-war career was a failure would not have caught on. But each attempted comeback was anticipated and watched gleefully by the slavering press and then presented as yet another Jesse Matthews disaster if it failed to be as big as Evergreen. This would be the equivalent of the whole of Fleet Street savaging Paul McCartney because the Frog Chorus wasn't as good as Penny Lane. In a jail, love held the only key. Jessie did become a big star all over again in the 1960s when she took the part of Mary Dale in the long-running BBC radio soap opera Mrs Dale's Diary. Her final screen appearance was opposite Bill Maynard in an episode of Tales of the Unexpected in 1980. But Jessie was always a troubled person, and although circumstances often conspired to thwart her professional and personal ambitions, as often as not, it was her own erratic behaviour that brought about her misfortunes. Many of Jessie's professional relationships had been difficult, a few too many perhaps for it to be put down to coincidence. And whether or not she could be held responsible for her own actions is debatable. But as friend of the show, PhD candidate Jade Evans illustrates, she sometimes did not endear herself to people with whom it might have been better to have fostered good relations. 
In the archive, I found a letter that Jesse had sent to Michael Balkin, and in it she's snapping at him over a decision that he's made. So it's unclear exactly what the decision was, but it appears to be over Jesse and Sonny wanting to go to something that Balkan is refusing to let them go to. And I did wonder if it was maybe the king and queen visit of the good companions that Jesse wasn't allowed to attend due to Sonny's divorce scandal. So um, Jesse is very apologetic to Balkan and clearly obedient to his wishes in this. The turn is apologetic, but it, you know Jesse was very headstrong and she did kind of snap at times and she's kind of expressing her frustrations in this letter. But at the end of the day, she's also still respectful of Balkan's decision. But letters like this really tell us a lot about kind of their relationship and also kind of how Jessie was feeling about her career at the time. And now I'd like to introduce you to a new friend of mine, a man who knew Jessie from the 1950s up until her death in 1981, David Drummond. If you are of a particular vintage, you might remember David playing Bertie in the Granada TV series Biggles, which began in 1960. Or, if you're familiar with the more interesting back alleys of the West End, you might remember the shop that David ran for many decades, Pleasures of Past Times, which could be found on Cecil Court and sold theatrical ephemera, books and all sorts of interesting paraphernalia to do with theatre and film. I went round to visit David at his lovely house in Greenwich. I didn't think it was right to drag him into town to record our meeting because he's now 93 years old and is, as he told me in an email, a bit wobbly on his pins. He does make an excellent smoked salmon sandwich, though. I first saw Jesse Matthews <laughs> playing Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion. I was finishing my years as a soldier for a year and a half, and I was stationed in Aldershot, and I used to go to the rep every week and glory be there's jesse matthews and um but anyway similarly but that was the first time there was a special one night it's a sunday night i think it was at the prince's theater and she occupied the whole of the second half of the bill and she danced all sorts of different dances Absolutely fantastic. And I remember going round to her dressing room afterwards and I there saw the little black dress she'd been wearing and I touched it was absolutely soaking. <laughs> and then I never dreamt though, that I would ever meet her. But meet her he did, and it wasn't long before young David was working with Jessie and they became quite close. One of the things... Jessie was, she skilled a bit husky. And so my job, it was a little thing between the two of us. If she was getting anywhere near the wings, she'd hold out her hands and, and I'd be standing there with a glass of water. And it was to my great sorrow, uh, there was a little souvenir uh, that, in, that she signed and I'm going to reveal something on what she called me. The brat. To the brat, 
Many thanks for the many sips of water. And Jessie was not the only member of the family that David became close to. Because she came back from America, from um, Australia, and it was on that return that's when I met her daughter, Katie. Now, I had actually sort of vaguely seen her because she used to visit her mother while we were on tour in 1950. But uh, Katie would now be 85. Uh, and I would, at that time, I was, I was 20, so I'm now 93. <laughs> and uh, we still reminisce about these, these times. It's rather nice. And I, but I do remember when she was about 16, she wouldn't have anything to do with the ASM. She was not exactly snooty, but didn't go out of her way. She was. While I was in Margate, appearing in their lives in Canterbury, and invites me to lunch, and that's uh, and it's, it's, this is when you really think of it. Katie would be nineteen then, and she's playing the other woman opposite her mother. Wow. And, it's, uh, and I think she first, she first learned to act uh, or play with her mother in Australia, and somehow sort of it was sort of vaguely in the in the blood. You know, couldn't escape it with what with Sunny as well. Yeah. <laughs> we just after after lunch, we just went off together, and boom, we just. I, I, we were just, we just, I, I too, anyway. And, uh, and Jessie was very happy because she's quite fond of me. And, uh, How long were you always, together? Hmm? How long were you together? Not all that, not all that long, but have been over the years. I've become quite enmeshed. With the whole family. And the, so Jessie and, went from being David's friend and colleague to being the mother of his girlfriend. As David said, he's still in touch with Katie, who went from Catherine to Katie to Catherine Countess of Grixoni after marrying an Italian count, but that's probably a different podcast. One thing that often crops up when reading obituaries or articles about Jessie is that she had a difficult and troubled relationship with Katie. I did ask David about this, and he seemed a bit nonplussed. It's fairly well documented that they went through some turbulent times in their relationship, but I would argue to no greater a degree than many people have in their family lives, and they do appear to have reconciled. In fact, Katie named her daughter Jessica after her mum. But Jessie left Katie out of her will, and stated therein that she'd been a disappointment to her. This seems quite a cruel thing to do and reflects more badly on Jessie than on Katie. It could be that this version of Jessie's will was written when she was going through one of her many periods of mental instability and that at other times she might have regretted this, but we'll never know. One of the many anecdotes David recounted to me illustrates how Jessie's attitude to her fame had been affected by the treatment that had been meted out to her by the press over the years. I just need to set this story up by saying that David was great friends with Leslie Crowther, come on down, and that Leslie had two lodgers who lived in a flat at the top of his house. This was probably late 1950s, early 60s. 
Because Leslie was often away or unavailable, David would collect the rent in cash from the lodgers on Leslie's behalf. Take it away, David. I remember she was very upset when I revealed that I, in, in this home of Leslie Crowther's, he let the very top floor to two ladies who's made their living by cutting the sandwiches for a local pub at <laughs> the lunchtime. And uh, I had to collect this um, weekly payment and put it in Lizzie's post office savings book. And uh, they sounded a bit like Elsie and Doris Waters. And I thought it was very funny. And I tape recorded them. And I started to play it to Jessie. She was furious with me. Don't you, David, promise you never, ever do this again. And it was, she got some sort of feeling that people were doing that kind of thing to her. She had a, um, a little thing, I think it had a little bit to do leading up to a breakdown where she felt there were people who were spying on her. It's that kind of element. And uh, she shied away. I was walking along the front uh, with her in Torquay, I remember, and someone sort of suddenly took a photograph of her. She didn't like that. I mean, if someone had come round and said, Miss Matthews, and, and, and take me. But I think it's invaded her privacy too much. I'm off now, Mary. All right, darling. Have a good day. Well, a good morning, anyway. <laughs> there won't be much of it. By the time I've packed my last few things together, they'll be passing around the glasses. You did say it was 12 o'clock, didn't you? Yes. Well, those are my orders from Miss Harvey. You're sure you'll be able to make it? I shall be there. And we should be back here by the time the furniture people come, shouldn't we? Oh, I should think so. Oh, well, even if we're not, Sally will be here. She and Mother can supervise it all. I'll see you later, then. I'll come out with you. Strange to think this is the last time I'll see you off to work. Rather nice. As I mentioned in passing earlier on, Jessie became famous all over again in 1963 when she landed the role of Mary Dale in Mrs Dale's Diary on the BBC, or, as it had recently been renamed, The Dale's. Mrs Dale's diary had been running since 1948 and followed the daily goings-on of the Dale family, who lived in suburban middle-class London. Early in the groovy 1960s, the show had been seen by many as twee and old-fashioned, so the top chaps at the BBC decided the show needed a revamp. As part of this, the show was renamed, the fictional family was moved to a grittier, less suburban location... The theme tune was changed, as was the format of the daily episodes, and most controversially, the original Mrs Dale, an actress called Ellis Powell, was sacked. It might be that the BBC sacked her because of her drinking habits. This is a reason which is often stated. But given that the average Dale's listener would have been old enough to remember Jessie from her heyday and might perhaps have a lingering memory of the salacious press coverage she'd received and bearing in mind the idea that they were trying to jazz the show up, Maybe Jessie's appointment was a shrewd move. In any case, this comfortable middle-brow programme managed to survive the swinging 60s and was finally brought to an end at the end of 1969. I love you so. 
that the dream is over. A few years later, in the early 1970s, Jessie appeared as a guest on a BBC Radio Solent programme called Remember This, which just happened to have been presented by an old university professor of mine, Sean Street. In this clip, she talks about her old friend Dame Anna Neagle and hints at some of her own sometimes temperamental behaviour. Dame Anna Neagle, of course. Yes, indeed. <laughs> now, you, you know her quite well. Well, I knew her quite well because she was a chorus girl and she got her first break through my being temperamental. <laughs> she was um, under the stage one day, I was going underneath the stage to get to the other side, and I found this little girl crying in the corner, and I asked her what on earth was wrong, and she said, uh, oh, I'm, I should be 25 next month, and I haven't got anywhere. And I said, well, wait until you're 25, and if you haven't got anywhere by then, then I should definitely look for another job, but at least wait until you are 25. And I had a quarrel with Jack Buchanan at the time, and we were appearing in Cabaret, and he was behaving in the most odd manner, which I won't go into. And uh, I refused to go with him that night, and Anna stepped into the breach, and that's how Anna started. Because in those days it was, she it was... It, 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 it was as sudden as that, with the talking to her in the morning. She was practically on that night. That sounds like fate, you know. yes. She yes. wasn't Anna Neagle in those days. No, she was Marjorie Robertson. Yeah. Later in the same programme, Sean plays her some more music from her past. Darling Sir Noel Coward, of course. Yes, who else? Uh, no, that was, I think, from This Year of Grace. Yes, which a very you... frightening person to work with. I was going to ask you about Noel Coward. What was Wonderful, it? quite brilliant, but very frightening. I mean, he really is so superb. Uh, I remember I was singing uh, The Room of the View, and I sang high above the mountains and sea. And he said, um, darling, how do you spell mountain? I said, M-O-U-N-T-A-I-N. How do you pronounce it? Is it mountain? Then, for God's sake, sing mountain and not mountain. <laughs> in front of everybody. Not about that big, you know. But he was super to work with, really, was superb. Was he? Was yes, he superb, but, but such a, a taskmaster. You daren't repeat. If he told you something, if you made a mistake on, on something and he told you and corrected you, you didn't dare repeat that mistake. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have it done for a week. He would nag you. He would nag you for about a week if you made one mistake, you know. And Jessie had some reflections on her early days in the theatre, working with C.B. Cochrane. He's just one of those people that uh, they, they just don't make them like him anymore, you know. <laughs> mm. he, he was so marvellous because he sort of gave, gave the artists the, the chance to create, which so few people do nowadays. They sort of uh, play it over to you. They say, this is how I want it done and this is what I want you to do. And you're just a little puppet, whereas Cochrane would tell you the story, the idea behind it, and then he'd say, well, go away, children, I'll work on it, and I'll see what you've got for me in a fortnight. And we'd go away with a choreographer, and we'd get in a corner, and we'd each give out our, our little ideas, and we'd come together, and we'd work like stink for a fortnight, and then he'd see it, and he'd say, marvellous, it's absolutely superb, don't touch it, or else he'd say, it's a chorus too long. Or he'd say, you've got an anticlimax, you've got a false ending, that's wrong, cut the false ending, finish there, and you've got it. Or else he'd say, sorry kids, start from scratch. Mm. And, and we'd have to start all over again. But it was our own creation, which was a lovely feeling. You really felt that you were, you were giving something, you know, that you were creating. Jessie cropped up on TV throughout the 1950s, 60s and 70s on chat shows and the like and was even doorstepped by Eamon Andrews in 1961 for an episode of This Is Your Life. But her final appearance on TV screens came in 1980 in an episode of Tales of the Unexpected. Jessie plays an elderly woman who lives in an isolated farmhouse with her grown-up son. 
One day when she's alone, she's visited by an unscrupulous scrap merchant who thinks he spotted a priceless painting on the wall. Nice little picture. Frame it for you about 30. Really? I didn't know. I found it in the attic. Has it, uh, like, been in the family long? No, not our family. It belonged to the people we bought the farmhouse from. They, uh, just left it. So to round off this last gallop through the life of Soho's very own born and bred superstar, Jesse Matthews, I'm going to leave the final word to author Rob Baker, with whom I met up some weeks ago at Jesse's local, The Blue Posts on Berwick Street. Jesse Matthews, in some ways, I mean, she had great success, uh, especially, you know, before the war. And, um, but she had a very problematic life and she had mental breakdowns, severe mental breakdowns. And I think a lot of it was the psychological damage as someone coming from such a poor background in Berwick Street. So I think it was also, it, it became psychologically damaging her, uh, for her throughout her life. I mean, she, from the poor background that she was born in, um, getting married, trying all the time, trying to marry into a more sophisticated, um, uh, more well-off um, family. And I think it damaged her throughout her life. She never really could shake it off. And she had um, more than one mental breakdown, severe mental breakdowns. And uh, she was once described as a gutter snipe by, you know, by fellow actress. And I don't think she ever really managed to shake that off, that, that sort of feeling that she was an outsider and, and, and somewhere that she didn't belong. Thank you, Rob, for that conclusion. And thanks to all my lovely contributors. You'll find a full list of them and links to information about them at SohoBytesPodcast.com, of course. And coming up after a short, irritating break, I'll be talking to another special guest about today's Jesse Matthews film, Friday the 13th. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Friday the 13th is an unusual Jessie Matthews film compared to her others because despite Jessie's name being prominent on the poster, it's an ensemble piece made up of seven different stories and Jessie's story is just one of those seven. I was going to say seven intertwining stories, but that would be inaccurate, as the seven stories don't actually intertwine at all. They just all come together at the end, in one fateful moment. At the beginning of the film, we meet our key characters from these seven stories who are all travelling on a bus through London in a raging thunderstorm. A caption reads, You hear of an accident. There are victims, strangers to one another. Supposing we could put back the clock and see how chance made these strangers share this appalling moment. We don't know who any of these characters are yet, but we have small moments with each of them as the bus trundles along. 
As the bus travels down Regent Street, a bolt of lightning hits a crane, and in order to avoid falling debris, the driver swerves and finally comes to a shattering halt embedded in a shop window. In a pleasing montage of newspaper headlines and clicking teletypewriters, we learn that there have been injuries and two deaths. The date of this catastrophe? Of course, it's Friday the 13th. We then rewind Big Ben and meet our bus passengers as they were earlier that day and follow their progress through their seven individual stories towards the point at which they will converge. Jessie, it turns out, is a chorus girl, or to give her her correct title, a non-stop variety girl called Millie. She's had a packed day made up of rehearsals and silly arguments with her boyfriend, a stuffy schoolmaster called Horace, played by Ralph Richardson. That's Tornit. Tornit? What's my chance to do, silly old pilgrim father? Do you realise that man offered me a job at the Casino de Paris? Oh, where's that? Paris, of course. Where did you think it was? Ashby de la Zouche? Well, you're not going. Did I hear you say I can't go? Yes, you did. Paris, of all places. Well, what's wrong with Paris? You were going to take me there? Oh, that's different. We'd have gone to the Louvre and places like that. Seen Napoleon's tomb, I suppose. Another daring outing. It's perfectly obvious what this fellow wants to take you to Paris for. My dear Horace B. S.C. I'm not a B.S.C. Well, R.S.B.P. or whatever you are. It's about time you realise I can take care of myself. Do you know I've slapped more gentlemen's faces than any other chorus girl in the West End? And I shall continue to do so ad lib. Mr. Lightfoot, played by Robertson Hare, is a henpecked booby who, by the time he finds himself on the ill-fated bus, has had a terrible day getting conned and pickpocketed by an attractive young woman he met on a park bench. When he realises that he has no money to pay his fare, a fellow passenger steps in to help. I've been robbed. What are you going to do about it? Write me out a cheque? Oh dear, what can I do? I'll tell you what you can do, you can walk. It's not necessary, really. Allow me. Oh. Thank you very much indeed. The good Samaritan who comes to his rescue is called Blake, but during his story we discover that he's actually a criminal, a blackmailer who has just fleeced £100 from his latest victim. This victim, by the way, Frank, is played by Frank Lawton. Frank Lawton was the man whom Evelyn Lane married after her first husband, Sonny Hale, left her to marry Jessie. It's a small world. Talking of Sonny Hale, he plays the bus conductor and Friday the 13th features his first on-screen interaction with his wife, Jessie. Other characters aboard the bus include Joe, a market trader played by my least favourite person probably ever, Max Miller. He thinks he's about to make a big sale to a couple of American antique dealers. They are, in fact, undercover police officers. There's also Henry Jackson, played by Elliot Maycomb. He's been saving up for years to take his wife, played by the ever-brilliant Ursula Jeans, on a luxurious cruise, unaware that she's left him already to run off with a shifty-looking geezer who shows all the signs of being a travelling salesman. The person who looks least accustomed to travelling by bus is Flora Wakefield, played by Mary Gerald. She's a lady of slightly advanced years, making a late-night flit across town in order to rectify a terrible mistake she made early that day, which could have cost her husband, played by Edmund Gwen, his life savings. Other notable performances come from Gordon Harker, playing Mr Wakefield's irksome business associate, Hamilton Briggs, Martisha Hunt as Mr Lightfoot's highly strung wife, She's best known for playing Miss Havisham in David Lean's Great Expectations and Donald Calthrop as a seedy theatrical agent for whom the Me Too hashtag could have been invented. Friday the 13th is, in my humble but valid opinion, 
the best film Jesse made with Victor Saville, and because it's an ensemble piece with no star lead performer, the star of the show is Saville himself. With less screen time given over to large-scale song and dance numbers, and therefore to choreographers and musical directors, he's taken skillful control of the narrative and made it tight and satisfying. We know from the outset that two people on board the bus will die in the accident, and we're left guessing as to who they might be. Each of the seven different stories is compelling in its own right, and although we don't know the characters when we meet them on the bus, by the time we return to the same scene towards the end of the film, seconds before the fatal crash, having followed them around all that day, we are invested in their lives. Will Millie make it up with her boyfriend? Will Joe cotton on to the fact that he's been set up by the police? Has Mary plunged her family into destitution? What will poor old Henry do when he gets home with surprise cruise tickets for his wife? only to find he's been cuckolded and abandoned. Sidney Gilliatt crafted the story, or stories, and the dialogue was written by Emlyn Williams, who also plays Blake the conman. The whole thing feels very technically accomplished, especially for a film that came so early into the talkie period. The stories are great, the shots of the West End are very pleasing to a location nerd like me, the performances are pretty much all excellent, even Max Miller. In fact, the only thing I don't like about Friday the 13th from 1933 is that when trying to research it, the stupid 1980s slasher film of the same name comes up in the first 10 to 15 positions in a Google search. It's very, very annoying. Some months ago, I posted a poll on Twitter asking the millions of Soho Bites listeners out there which three Jesse Matthews films we should talk about in this Jesse three-parter. After the poll closed, we were contacted by everybody's favourite polling guru, Professor Sir John Curtis of Strathclyde University, who told me in shocked tones that there were actually four films that were way out ahead of the rest. We've done two of them already, Evergreen and The Good Companions, so I gave a choice of the remaining two films, First a Girl and Friday the 13th, to today's guest, Dr Jennifer Voss of De Montford University. I think I had assumed that she would choose First a Girl, this is a film that has given us some iconic images of Jessie, dressed in a tuxedo, smoking a cigar, and is a classic Jessie film in that she sings, dances, does the funny stuff, and falls in love. But Jenny actually chose Friday the 13th, which pleased me no end, I can tell you and no mistake. I first came across Jenny on Twitter because some of her research has been based on scrapbooks made by young film fans back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and I have a few of those myself. Jenny's particular interest is in performance styles in the transition period. The transition from silent to sound films, that is. So this early sound film with a large ensemble cast from a range of different acting disciplines should, on paper, be right up her alley. Or, as she says, in her wheelhouse. Yes, like you say, the transitional period is sort of more in my wheelhouse. So I picked this one as it was sort of the, the earlier one. Not to say that I didn't thoroughly enjoy Last Girl. But yeah, like you say, I'm really interested in trying to sort of pick out the different performative backgrounds of the actors. I think we have a really nice blend here with sort of such a big ensemble cast. So we have actors like Ralph Richardson and uh, Marticia Hunt, who are repertory trained actors. So they'll have uh, been used to performing in Shakespeare um, and sort of realist sort of Shaw and Ibsen performances contrasted with our sort of musical review comedy performers so we've got Robertson Hare who is Lightfoot in the in the film and obviously the wonderful Jesse Matthews so I really like how we get a lot of a lot of contrasts 
happening. So we get with people like Ralph Richardson, we get sort of the really serious, this like fiddly characters. But actually, his performance is really interesting because a lot of um, the emotional tension between them, he's delivering vocally, whereas Jesse Matthews is performing it sort of gesturally. So we're getting lots of sort of, um, again, big expressive faces, sort of big like arm movements sort of happening and the way she sort of holds herself is quite um, extravagant. I think well, you can tell by her posture that she is dance trained. That is her background. Yeah, and we get yeah, the expressive face of her combined and sort of like uh, put against the backgrounds of Richardson's seriousness. So I think that they make quite an interesting couple. Slightly unlikely as a couple, aren't they? The two characters. I yeah. mean, what does she see in him? He seems like such a stuffed shirt. Yeah, I'm not sure. They are a very odd couple together, but they, they it creates a very interesting dynamic, a really interesting uh, performance, I think. And then the same with Robson Harris Lightfoot with his, his sort of the hempex husband. And with Marticia Hunt, she sort of has that very low, very posh, very theatrical, incredibly sort of over enunciating voice compared with him he's very sort of his background's in fast so he's very extravagant lots of physicality um for him as well so he's sort of um being pulled along the street down the park by a very big dog that she's made him walk that's really funny the dog (laughs) yeah sort of like really pulling him along and we get his sort of really big again also really expressive face um he's got these really big thick set eyebrows so when he's sort of looking about when there's a slight flirty scene when he's sort of canoodling um, with Lonora Corbett underneath an umbrella, sort of making kissy sounds. Um, yeah, a really nice contrast there with the different actors. Yeah, that's why I enjoyed it. Like a really big ensemble cast with really different backgrounds sort of coming together. Could we talk about this melodrama thing? You, what defines melodrama? It's a word we use, we hear used quite a lot. People often say, oh, don't be so melodramatic. But what actually is melodrama? I think it's one of those, so melodrama as a genre is one where there's so much um, sort of written about it from an academic standpoint. Much of it's sort of linked to this idea of sort of the women's film and sort of excesses of emotion. And in terms of the silent film period, obviously it was a dominant genre of silent films and also a dominant theatrical um, trend. But also because of a lack of very sort of specific film acting training at the time, sort of silent film performers who have maybe come come from sort of from the stage or have learnt themselves or sort of, yeah, being self-taught through sort of um, the really popular acting training manuals that were being sort of disseminated, um, particularly in Britain at the time. The foundation of that is sort of a melodramatic heritage. So you still see elements of a melodramatic performance style coming through in the case of some performers, even if the film itself is not necessarily characterised as a melodrama. So if we're thinking about melodramatic performance styles, it's sort of overtly stylized gesture, which somebody like Jesse Matthews, who is a dancer, sort of maybe tends to sway towards that larger gesticulating, um, very sort of grand uh, movements that can be sort of put under sort of yeah a little umbrella of a melodramatic performance styles and then also we get just the idea of moments of extreme sort of heightened emotion coming through can also be sort of deemed as melodramatic so we get the scene that's to do with blackmailing and we get some slaps big cries on shoulders um lots of um thyroid tilts as sort of the women are sort of 
coming sort of on the brink of tears. Do you say um, thyroid yeah, tilt? Talk. Yes, thyroid. thyroid oh, no, I've tilt. never heard that. <laughs> how do you tilt? How do you talk your thyroid? Uh, it's well, thyroid tilt is the vocal training term, which I did. I'd learned very recently trying to explain the sound that is made when somebody's kind of just on the on the brink of tears okay. and they're sort of moving their sort of larynx their thigh was forwards to create that sound okay. um, so in melodrama maybe we see sort of more of that sort of stylistic choice with the delivery of dialogue two things i want to ask you about what you just said so you said manual so there's acting manual so you send off like some postage yes. stamps and you get how do you get feedback how do you know you're doing the right thing if you're standing in your bedroom with your manual um, i guess you don't that was actually one of the key sort of methodologies of my phd was looking at these acting training manuals and trying to see if there was sort of evidence of the style and techniques that were dominant theatrical styles and film acting styles that were being proffered by these acting training manuals and looking to see if there was any evidence of that type of style of performance in these silent films. So I've actually just done a chapter for an edited collection specifically about the link between how readers, so young audiences, predominantly young female readers of fan magazines, learnt to sort of taught themselves to act through mimicking sort of the images and sort of styles of performance that are discussed in fan magazines and the link between the images and the descriptions of performance in fan magazines to those in actor training manuals. So thinking about how how people accessed film acting training during the silent period, like as I say, when there wasn't really an established style of film acting training or film acting schools at the time. Yeah, so I am really interested in this way of learning and sort of self-teaching and informal modes of training but again these acting training manuals and the styles of performance that's being offered through them and the styles of performance that are being talked about in fan magazines and the images that are used are underpinned by melodramatic sort of gestural styles is the leap from the victorian stage to silent films is that a less of a leap than the leap from silent films to sound films? Yeah, so I would say, so during the transitional period, so I definitely think there is obviously a much clearer link between sort of theatrical melodrama from the stage and silent film performance. But then going into the transitional period, and that's what, this is what's quite interesting because we have that such sort of big period of change and we have sort of an influx of people from the stage coming in, taking over the roles um, that maybe sort of the big stars of the silent period were then not necessarily getting but also we see people sort of big stars who were so popular so famous during the silent period coming through the transition and we see them having to adapt to talking and what we get there is a really nice and what I think is really interesting like a doubling of performance that Colleen Moore describes as pantomiming where they will perform the action or sort of the intended meaning of the scene they'll sort of perform it silently and there's like a slight delay when they say the dialogue so they're trying to do both at the same time um, and we get people like Clara Bow doing this quite a lot so there is a really interesting sort of overlap where we see elements of this sort of melodramatic gestural style still evidence in early transitional sound where people are just sort of getting used to the idea so in the transitional period where maybe sort of particular dialogue directors weren't being employed. So it isn't until really sort of the mid to late 30s where sort of the actual role 
of sort of dialogue coach and dialogue director become sort of part of studio HR records. Obviously, they had sort of voice lessons and elocution lessons, but where they sort of became mainstays of the actual production team, it isn't until a bit later on. So, yeah, right on that cusp, there's a really interesting dynamic happening where actors are trying to teach themselves how to do it and often coming up with a very wonderful mix of everything. I remember seeing a documentary a while ago, I think it's a Paul Merton documentary, he's talking about how silent films had reached this kind of high standard and then when sound came in, suddenly they were restricted then by microphones. So there's the people who would have been doing like these yeah. wild performances who were then kind of having to stand and deliver their lines from this one position because the mic was hidden behind a vase of flowers or something, you know. Yeah. I feel that in this film, Friday the 13th, it feels quite slick. It all feels technically very mm. advanced, really. I mean, do you see it in this film, that kind of restricted by the technology performances? or um, Not necessarily this film. One thing I did notice is that there are some sort of wide-angle shots where we're getting the whole image of the room and we sort of see in real time somebody crossing the entire space where normally that would be cut, but they're not necessarily always talking, so that might be sort of... A, a creative choice um, by the director to, to, to leave that in. But yes, there are definitely actresses who were sort of stifled by this. So Joan Crawford is another example of somebody who was dance trained, sort of performed in reviews and then sort of did make the transition. But you can really see in some of the films where she is maybe more used to being more fluid in her movements, being restricted. And it's the same for Mabel Porton as well, for somebody who who just sort of was a lively and sort of had a very lively energy in silent film performances, then needing to become restricted. And again, same for Clara Bow, um, people who are high energy, whether they were dance trained or not, really sort of fluid, big movements um, on screen, sort of, yeah, being being restricted but then we obviously we get Joan Crawford is somebody who managed to yeah reinvent herself enough and sort of make through that transition whereas people like Mabel Porton didn't necessarily sort of weren't able to to maybe make it in that way. Is there a general rule of thumb for deciding who makes it and who doesn't make it past the transition? I don't think so no I think it was as much about publicity as it was about skill so at the time obviously you've got the Great Depression happening around the same time so the the excess and like hedonism of the 1920s high energy flapper was sort of falling out of favor with audiences and sort of the idea of the new woman was taking on a slightly sort of different energy where it's more to do with sort of sophisticated glamour and these very long elegant ball gowns rather than sort of the short skirts um short dresses so we do we are getting a different sort of attitude towards towards women happening and this idea of excess so people again like Clara Bow are sort of suffering from quite a lot of media coverage that's sort of trying to like negatively impact her career although actually she did make I think 11 or 13 sound films so it wasn't that she was bad in them I think sort of studios were trying to work out what they considered what they perceived to be a problem with her and her and her behaviour that they felt that they needed to sort of really manage. Didn't she have a really strong Brooklyn accent as well, Clara Bow? She did, but I think it kind of it kind of works. But then Mabel Poulton, her really Cockney accent was what people were saying, sort of it's really not suitable. But then different actresses were given different lengths of time to prepare. So Greta Garbo was somebody who was sort of given sort of quite a lot of time, quite a lot of space to practice with 
microphones and practice with their voice, whereas people like Clara Bow were just sort of thrust in front of them. There were some actresses who just decided they didn't want to do it. So Lillian Gish is somebody who she didn't really um, think talkies were going to take off necessarily. And she wanted, she chose to go back to stage performing for a while. She didn't want to necessarily be involved. And then people like Louise Brooks, who was so offended that they weren't going to sort of increase her pay until they were definitely sure that she was going to be good enough in talkies. So so she quit. Um, so yeah, I think there was lots of different reasons as to why some stars made it sort of air quotes but I don't think it was necessarily just about skill or voice I think there were lots of other things happening at the same time I think Jessie was hit this stage because her film career kicked off pretty much as sound came in so she didn't really have to worry Mm. about that transition but she'd already done this whole number on herself where she she did have this naturally had this very strong cockney accent but instead had developed this absurd accent this Aspie de la Zouche you know um, and then the transition yeah. that she didn't quite make it through which is kind of an equivalent is she fell out of favour basically after the second world war because I think um, her films represented excess and glamour and all that kind of stuff but like you're saying about the excesses of the 20s mm. we had our period of those kind of films in the 30s and then after the war when everyone's living in darned socks all, all over the place yeah it felt slightly tasteless then to be doing those kind of films after that but i wonder if she would have had a longer more sustained career if she hadn't landed it in that exact moment mm. so tell me about your love of scrapbooks yes so i've just started a postdoctoral research project where i am looking at different collections of scrapbooks made by different people so uh, made by some teenage fans um somewhere we don't know who sort of who made them somewhere it's sort of focusing on just very specific actresses but what i'm interested in is looking at how scrapbooks offer documentations of performance styles so like I was talking about the actor training manuals and fan magazines are now developing this to look at how the clippings from fan magazines and their sort of the curated scrapbooks and how different people have pulled together their favorite images of their favorite stars and put them together but then what this tells us about performance heritages because there's quite a lot um sort of new interest in scrapbooks so there are academics that are writing a lot about scrapbooks in relation to audience and sort of fandoms and also sort of the intimate relations between women within the scrapbooks but I'm interested in looking at them from a sort of a performance analysis perspective so at De Montfort University we've got a nice collection of scrapbooks made by someone who was a teenager in the 1930s we've also got some scrapbooks where again we're not sure when they were made but they are images from the 1920s 30s and 40s where it's predominantly just focused on the hair and and costume and um, these were actually purchased by the university in the 1970s as teaching resources on the on the fashion courses but then I've also been to the BFI to look at the scrapbooks that are focused on single actresses, so American actresses, Malvina, Longfellow and Bibi Daniels. So thinking about the different types of scrapbooks related to film stars and seeing what what we can glean about performance styles during this period. That must be quite difficult. You must be dealing with micro-clues 
in those scrapbooks as to, in terms of performance styles? Yeah, so looking at how they're framed, looking at the contextualization between the other images that are in the books, and then also watching the film, sort of taking a select few and considering them alongside their film performances as well to see how they relate. So there's quite an interesting example that if you take just the film scrapbooks of one of the collections, all the images of Greta Garbo are just of her in period films. So if you were sort of to look at that in isolation, you just get a sense of her as just a, an actress that just did period films. But I think that's quite interesting and what that says about about how period films are presented through these through these images the, this transitional period that you uh, you spend your time watching films from you must have come across all sorts of slightly ropey representations of class and gender oh. and all those kind of things and there are a couple of examples one particularly egregious example of language that today makes us kind of like tense our buttocks slightly when we hear it which is a use of the n-word but um, what's your attitude to this kind of thing generally when you work in this sort of material? And, and how, did the, how did you react to this specific example in this film? Yeah, so I think when looking at transitional films, one of the most notable problems that comes up is the fact that the very first talkie, um, the jazz singer, the most famous part of that when they start talking, it is a performance of blackface. So mm, yeah. <laughs> I think as film historians, I think it's important that as sort of studying this period, that we are also acknowledging how horrendous and how damaging these representations are. So I think it's really important not to sort of gloss over and pretend that, that it doesn't happen. Um, so I think that when talking about these films, it is, it is important that we acknowledge that actually in this film, yeah, there is a horrendous use of racist language in here. And I think that also in terms of the scrapbooks that I'm looking at, so there are pictures of Hattie McDaniel and Paul Robeson in there which is great in terms of the fact that actually this teenager sort of was interested in sort of a diverse in diverse stars, but the images are still racist stereotypes. So it's still Hattie McDaniel as a maid. And if you look at her film credit, she's almost exclusively a maid. So I think it's still really important that even when we are talk that when we're talking about this period of film history, that we are acknowledging the harm and the racism that, that is embedded with quite a lot of it, obviously, because it's an these films are overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, a white ensemble cast as well so it's sort of trying to sort of reconcile the fact that we can't just not study history sort of silent film history but it's really important that we acknowledge and try and focus on not just the films that have constantly been looked at we are we sort of make a conscious effort to talk about um more diverse ranges of films but yeah in this film it is it is still shocking to hear the use of that word um and again its use is is intended it's, it's talking about labor it's talking about it's sort of using the n-word in, in terms of talking about sort of the hard labor so it is still directly referencing really harmful connotations Slavery, yeah it's basically. still it's still shocking to hear. It's still really shocking to hear, definitely. I mean, in some ways, that you know, a black actress in those days always playing maids, you could say that's a reflection of the times. You know, lots of black people did do jobs like railway porters. We're talking about America now, railway porters and maids and all that kind of stuff. But to hear that posh young lady on a London bus say, oh, you've been working like an N-word recently. That I did find that quite shocking. I mean, like you say, you have to acknowledge it, but I think also you can't really kind of go on about it. It's, I mean, fundamentally, it just comes down to it was different times. People had different notions about all sorts of things. And it almost seems like a bit of a waste of time to go beyond much more than acknowledging it. If you were screening Friday the 13th, 
Would you put a disclaimer at the start or anything? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm doing a screening of The Women. So that's a 1939 film. And I think it does have lots of racist sort of stereotypes of, of women in it. And also reference to swastikas as well. So I'll absolutely be doing a content warning. So if you were, if you were sitting at home, it's windy outside, you've got a selection of snacks... Would you sit down and watch this film on a rainy Sunday afternoon or, or would you rather watch Die Hard or...? No, oh no, I definitely wouldn't watch Die Hard. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a, a, an action film fan. Yes, I would definitely watch this again. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you to Dr Jennifer Voss for coming on the show and for that insight into her research. Thanks also to Rob Baker, Dr Lawrence Napper and Jade Evans for their excellent contributions throughout this series and to Jane Slavin for giving her Jessie for the third time. Thanks also to Professor Sean Street for supplying me with some fantastic archive audio. And special thanks to David Drummond for spending the afternoon with me, talking about his memories of Jesse Matthews and her various family members, for showing me photographs from his private collection, and for feeding me all those sandwiches. You'll find links to information about all my guests and their splendid work in the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Please consider subscribing to the show if you haven't done so already. You can do that through one of the many podcast apps listed at SohoBitesPodcast.com. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can tweet or X us. The handle is at BitesSoho. And our email address is SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you'd like to support the show please do you can do that in the form of a kind review at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review or by splashing the cash around to help cover our costs just a little bit be fine thank you at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate sohobites is produced by me dom delaghi and is based on an original idea by dr jing and young see you very very soon actually because the christmas episode's coming out very very soon isn't it i'll see you then bye for now (laughs) 